Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I am Henry Marsh. I'm Mahesh. Uh, and we are here with our producer, Richa, who's going to tell us about today's guest. Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really excited to introduce Michelle, former Stern alumni and founder of FindMine. It's a great episode for all those budding entrepreneurs wanting to know what it really takes to start your own business. Awesome. And with that, let's get started. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. And we are here today with Michelle Bacharach, Stern alum, entrepreneur, and founder of the company Find Mind. We're really excited to talk to her today. Well, Michelle, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, probably one of the best ways we like to get started here is to just have you introduce yourself to our audience. Um, I know you're a few years out from uh, doing your 30-second pitch, so I might give you 40 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, tell us a bit about where you're from and uh, what you're doing now. Sure. So I'm originally from California. I moved to New York to go to Stern in 2010. Um, thought I'd be here for two years and move back to California. And here it is, 2020, and I'm still in New York. Look um, at that. Founded a company here, bought an apartment. Um, so put down some roots in New York. But uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called FindMine. We're a B2B software solution for retailers and brands. Um, so it's a tech startup. I've been doing it for about four years and yeah, excited to be here and tell you more about it. Um, I think we'd love to talk about Find Mine, about you, about everything. I think one way that we'd like to get started um, with all that is just to talk a little bit about, um, you know, where you got the idea for the company, what drove you to want to uh, become an entrepreneur. Um, maybe there was like a strike of inspiration and an epiphany, um, or it was just like a long burning process that you loved and, and drove towards. Yeah, more of the latter for sure. Um, so I started my career in the startup scene in San Francisco in 2007 um, when I graduated from Berkeley. And it was just sort of becoming okay to say to your parents or your aunts and uncles and whatever you work for a startup again after the dot-com crash. Um, but it was a really small community that wasn't like it is today in San Francisco where everywhere you go there's like a I'm doing air quotes entrepreneur talking to an air quotes VC yeah. at like a Starbucks right um, there was none of that it was just like very much of an underdog industry so I got exposure early on to being in a startup and being 22 and you know kind of jerkily naive as you are um, I like looked at the founder of the startup that we were part of and the CEO who's a different woman who were both women and they were like you know, awesome. But I was also like, yeah, but I could do that. Like, you know, this doesn't look that hard. <laughs> I could totally do that. <laughs> nice. Um, but I think the fact that like it was a female founder, a female CEO, the board of one of the um, venture capitalists on the board um, from Menlo Ventures was a woman. It just didn't occur to me that that was like not common. That's so interesting. So I just got it in my head, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that someday. It's but rare it, enough now. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, what, 13 years ago? <laughs> well, and there's somewhat fewer people in the space in general. Yeah. So I don't I don't actually know the stats. It would be interesting to look that up. But it might have been more 
well represented back then, just because like the whole the sheer number of total people was smaller. I'm not sure, but that's a good point. Yeah. I could have just like completely locked into this, you know, unicorn of um, a company like structure, where it was, you know, a lot of women in positions of leadership, and so I just like kind of took it for granted. I was like, yeah, I could I could do that, um, but I didn't have an idea that was like compelling enough, and um, you know, you take like Ogan's classes and stuff, and he makes you carry around a notebook. It, that's for like a great reason. So like for, you know, years and years and years, I had this, I still have a list of ideas on my phone about like just, you know, things I would want to fix. It's more like problems rather than startup ideas. And then this particular one um, I got started on in 2010 when I came to Stern and I moved here from LA. I'd been an actress um, and I'd been playing like 16 year old, you know, girl whatever, like older sister in a nuclear family or something like that. So my wardrobe literally was like jean shorts, colorful shirt, you know, rainbow flip-flops. And I moved to Stern and I was like, I have to actually like look the part of a business person. And <laughs> Just it, wear 50 black different <laughs> colors of shades of black yeah. and gray. Like, well, okay, even that right. was new to me. And like yeah. the weather was different here. Like, yeah. You know, it's cold. Like I had to learn how to make down a part of my wardrobe. Mm. Um, and so what ended up happening was I would buy fashion products because I needed them for my kind of new wardrobe. And I would be like, okay, well, can I wear the, the suit jacket separately? Like, can I wear it with something that's not the suit bottoms that matched it? And even those questions, I was like, I don't know, I have so little expertise when it comes to fashion. But Banana Republic, who was the company who I bought my first suit from, they know better. Like, why can't they just tell me? And actually, the, the place I bought the um, suit from was a SWIB event. It was like a, you know, um, like dressing for business casual kind of event um, at Banana Republic. And so SWIB put it on because they knew that like students might not know, you know, how to how to incorporate their wardrobe into business casual or business formal in some cases, depending on what you were recruiting for. So that was kind of like the first in a long line of like um, failures in my personal life as a consumer, I would say, where I, the, the problem started to crystallize, where it was like, I have less expertise than this brand who's selling me products. How do we close that gap? And then from there, I, you know, I entered the business plan competition at Stern. Like one idea to solve that didn't get very far, dropped out pretty quickly because I had FOMO of all the other fun stuff that was happening. Um, I did a project in Oaken's class that was like another kind of derivative of the a different solution to that same kind of idea. And it sort of went on from there until um, until 2014 um, when I basically was like going to quit my job with or without something else lined up. And then I was like, oh, well, now's a good time to work on one of those ideas I have on my phone. And this particular idea or the problem that I wanted to solve kept kind of coming up and bubbling to the top. And so then I was like, okay, maybe that's the one I should work on. But then it took another full two years before I was like full time on it. We actually, I had formed a team. We'd figured out what we wanted to do, launched anything, you know, done any of that test and learn right. kind of stuff. So it was a really long journey to get to the point where we even like get the, something off the ground. But I think the important part of that was that like I actually cared enough about this problem to solve it that I was thinking about it for 
you know, I've been thinking about it for 10 years at this point. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, so you've, you've taken some Oaken classes, so you know that his basic advice is like, yeah, just don't become an entrepreneur. That's my basic advice, too. <laughs> Seriously? Like, buried the lid, went yeah. straight for the punchline. It's to, it, yeah. I mean, he's not wrong. Like, the whole, oh, no. it, the whole thing sucks so much in so many ways, and there's so many better uses of your time and money and energy. But you will ignore me like I ignored him if you just can't get this, like, obsession out of your head. Yeah. And so if that's the case, there's enough kind of, like, intrinsic value in the problem that you're solving or you're passionate enough about it to make up for the fact that it sucks getting out of bed every single day when some shit goes wrong all the time and you feel like, you know, and you don't get it paid for two and a half years and you're, like, making all sorts of sacrifices that your friends aren't when they have corporate jobs. So I feel like that's, like, the best advice ever because... You'll ignore it if it's if it's the thing that's got you grabbed by, you know, the heartstrings and it's worth putting up with all that other stuff. And if it's not, you won't take the leap. And that's great. It, would, would you say for you it was more like it sounds like you had this idea and you're like, I'm going to try this a couple of different times. Or was it just like, I just want to run my own business? Or is it kind of a combo of the two of those? Um, I, for me, it was really the problem. Like... This was inadequately solved across so many attempts for so many people for so many years that I was like, I don't know, um, like myopically obsessed with solving it. Like why can't consumers have better information about how to be successful with the products that they're buying? And I kept waiting for somebody else to come along and solve it, you know, and they didn't. And that is what sort of I was like, well... If no one else has done it, why not me? Yeah. Why so not? being problem first kind of is sort of interesting. Like when we think about entrepreneurship, sometimes it's sold to us as like product first, you know, and this is you sort of went about it oppositely to a certain extent, yeah. finding something, needing solving without necessarily an idea of like what this final thing is going to look like, but using iterations to sort of get there. What were some of the earlier iterations of what of what that solve solving that problem looked like? Yeah, so the early ones were kind of more consumer-facing. Okay. The first one was sort of like the clueless closet where you um, would have an app that would tell you what to wear based on what's in your closet Okay. that day. Yeah. Um, the one for Oaken's startup practicum was um, like we called it closet playbook. It was a daily email from men that would tell you what to wear based on your calendar and like the weather that day. Nice. Um, I, I would consider using that. Definitely yeah. need, need some help there. Yeah, for sure. Like if you step outside and like mall birds and it's raining. I'm like, oh great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, no, no one can see what I'm wearing right now, but I promise it's like not very flattering. For yeah, me. I, we didn't really. <laughs> he, everyone gets really self-conscious around me now because you know when they find out what my company does, and I'm like, no, don't worry. I have as little style as anyone. That's why I started this company so because. Funny. The, you know, make that's, it accessible, yeah. Yeah, you want to make it. You want to make it work for the everyday person who's not like this, you know, fashionista or beauty expert or whatever. Totally. Um, those people go work for Ralph Lauren and Estee Lauder. Like, great, good for you. But if you work for those companies, you already have that part of your brain that makes it easier for you to get from point A to point B. And the average consumer who buys from you does not. So, like, that's the gap that we're closing. Yeah. Okay. So it starts as this. I guess, like, there were some iterations where it was an app, and that was when it was in this B2C phase, right? So individuals are going to use it, things like that. What worked with that, and then what sort of made you think, like, okay, we need to rethink this? Well, all of this was sort of, like, um, 
on paper, right? Yeah. It was in a safe environment of a class or nice. a business plan competition or like even when my co-founder and I started working on it like part-time, we you know, he had student loans, he was still in school, so he was like covered and I was like I had a bunch of different side hustles, so I had like income coming in from being an admissions consultant for um, people trying to get into business school. Um, I was going back to acting a little bit, and I was doing consulting for like other startups and projects and things. So we did it all very safely, yeah. which I think is another really good lesson. Like, you know, don't if you especially if you haven't obsessed over the problem long enough to know what the right solution is and have like what they call product market fit, you shouldn't be spending any money on it because then you're going to waste a lot of money. <laughs> so we wasted a time, which was fine, because it wasn't, like, real yet. There was no skin in the game. We had no investors. There was no, like, big sacrifice that we were making. Um, and so, like, the app, you know, I'm using air quotes again. I keep forgetting. We're on a podcast. <laughs> no one can see my air quotes. Oh, good. <laughs> so the quote app was, like, in a document. Totally. Um, and so what worked about it was I think everyone who heard the idea was like, yeah, that's great, right? But then if you actually look at the financial model and underlying assumptions and some of those things, like growing a consumer business is fucking hard. Yeah. Consumers are really fickle. And like Stitch Fix was able to make it work and good for them. Like they I was ask you about them. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're great. They they solve the same problem directly to the consumer. Um, we don't compete with them because we're not direct to consumer. But they're like another way to another means to the end of getting the consumer that guidance. Um, but you know, they are one of a million mm -hmm. who were trying to solve that from the consumer angle. And they did a really, really good job of scaling that. But it's super, super hard to scale, and there's only one stitch fix. Mm -hmm. So, like, the odds playing that game, when you have to get so much adoption in order to get a percent of sales that's big enough to justify getting venture investment and all that other stuff, like, the odds are just so stacked against you. And getting consumer behavior to change when consumers are so fickle is like, that's another hurdle to get over. So the the things that all kind of worked about it where people were like, yes, I have that problem too, but I'm not willing to change my behavior enough to solve that problem. And so the real aha moment was like, then don't make them change their behavior. Meet them wherever they're shopping, however they're shopping, whether it's through e-commerce or they're in the physical store or they're like, you know, using Facebook Messenger to communicate with their favorite brand. How can you meet them wherever they are and get them the information that they need without any friction? So that's what made me realize we had to go B2B because the retailer is the one who has a relationship with the, the customer already. Right. And even if it changes, whether that relationship happens in a store or online, um, there's still a place for 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 you making that frictionless with the with with them. So was this decision to to, to change business models? Was that um, was that still on the like the uh, I'm using air quotes now too. Was that on the quote on paper phase of everything still? Yeah. So the one thing that we did um, from like a technical standpoint was we figured out like okay the call and response of the technology needs to be give it a product return to the consumer how to use such product. So we did a POC with a technology 
um, using like a bookmarklet where you like it's a plugin for your browser. And we this was one of the, like the ideas, right? And we actually built the pipes to do it. Um, we released it to like a hundred of our friends, and we just like got feedback on like what's buggy, what you know. And there was a whole bunch of comments about the friction that I don't want to have to think about installing this thing and then having to click this thing because it interrupts my shopping journey. I'm not used to it. But what we found was that the actual like call and response of the technology was was pretty good. Um, so that wasn't on paper. It was like a, PO, a technical POC. But that's what right about when I was realizing like there's a lot of stuff about this model that is never going to work because of the friction in the user experience. Hmm. Um, and we had some other like technical challenges that went away if you went directly to the retailer. So that was like 2015 maybe. So again, you know, my co-founder was in school. He was covered from like a money perspective. I was covered from a money perspective. Nobody was full time. We were just kind of like tinkering on this in our in our free time. And we found a lot of stuff that didn't work, which we, you know, sunset. And then we found a couple of nuggets that did. And then within the B2B construct, then I was like, okay, back to the drawing board on kind of the business side. What does that financial model look like? What is the value proposition? Doing like customer interviews, like would people really want this? Do retailers think that this is a big enough problem that they would pay for it? Because when we were moving B2B, now we're not getting an affiliate fee from every consumer purchase. Right. We're actually charging dollars up front. Yeah. Um, and so that took a while. But, um, yeah, once we had had that along with the kind of, like, technology, um, like, core POC that we were like, okay, this is technically feasible – then we actually were able to make something that didn't, that wasn't air quotes, that wasn't on paper. Yeah. Yeah. So from, from that phase when you're kind of like, all right, we feel like we have something here, we have legs, how, what was it like going through just sort of like the, the fundraising, getting maybe like hiring engineers to actually build this thing out, starting the, the sales process of talking to clients? I mean, that all must have been coming at you guys really quickly. Yeah. So it was like summer of 2015 when I got, I talked to like friend of a friend into letting us put our code on her Shopify store and it was just me and my co-founder. So like we had no team, we had no money, we had nothing. I had been trying to raise money, which in retrospect I should not have done. Like it was a whole waste of time. Um, you know, even like the advice and stuff that I got wasn't valuable because it was sort of diametrically opposed to the last person I spoke to. So there was no consensus. There was nothing like, um, valuable about that that I could use as a takeaway. Um, so I just wish I had like skipped all that, not spent any time trying to fundraise before we had product in market and potentially revenue and stuff as well. But this kind of pilot that we did with this friend of a friend um, went really well. And so then like the next pivot was really around, okay, we, we made her store a lot of money, but it's a, at a small scale. Um, it wasn't a huge revenue generator. It was sort of like 10% of her in brick and mortar store and her brick and mortar store was only one location. And so it was like an SMB kind of business. And so we were like, okay, our technology works. It works at this scale, but I think we need to go to a much bigger scale. And that's when uh, I applied to, we applied to a couple of accelerators. And so the one we, we went to was a retail specific accelerator. So that's where we got exposed to actual like enterprise retail cl uh, clients or cost potential customers. And then it sort of took off. And that was end of 2015, beginning of 2016. We got 50000 in investment from them. 
we hired like a couple of part-time people um, with that money. We, um, uh, I had known someone from our first like enterprise customer, John Barbados. I had known someone um, like through my interview process of trying to figure out like product market fit and like, is this valuable for a retailer? And they signed up for a pilot in like beginning of 2016. So that's when I say we really launched because nobody was full time until then. We hadn't, you know, we launched a product to like the consumer to the customer segment that we we're actually t- are targeting today. Until then, we had some sort of like experiments, um, but we actually launched the product, like the product that exists today, still in 2016. So you found success with this accelerator incubator model as opposed to more traditional venture gapped or like venture backed and just like private, fully private money. I mean, did you go out to the West Coast now in a completely like different realm from when you were there in 2007 and saw not that much of that activity and you knew you wanted this accelerator type um, thing? Like how, how does that, I don't know, how do you guys think about that? And then like what what made the accelerator model successful for you guys? I mean, I think that's the, the typical way to get the first money in okay. often these days. Um, because no VC in their right mind is going to fund a paper napkin idea unless you are a serial entrepreneur or unless you are, like, drinking buddies with some billionaire's kid. Um, If you are, like, no shame. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) Get it where you can get it. (laughs) But for everyone else, especially a female founder, like, first-time founder, this is a retail, like, retailers are our main audience. Um, There's just a lot of, like... uh, I don't know, lack of vision around that in the VC community. Mm-hmm. Um, it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, and this re- this accelerator was retail specific, which was really important because we, like, neither of us had a retail background. And because there's so much noise, in most industries that's true as well, but in retail specifically there's just, like, so much noise. It's crazy. So we wanted to help... Um, kind of put ourselves on the map and validate that what we were doing was important um, and attach our cart to the horse of, like, a retail authority. And that ex- this particular accelerator let us do that. So one thing, and th- I, this might be distilling it into, like, simple, like, pop culture terms, but, like, okay, on Shark Tank, they're always just like, and what are your sales? And that's, like, kind of the gotcha question where a lot of people are like, well, we, we haven't had any sales yet. It, would you say that, like, just even doing that, like, Shopify sort of, like, like test exper- experiment to, like, proof, like, proof of concept this works was, like, pretty critical for you, get, like, getting it accepted into that accelerator? Yeah, or, for sure. I think that yeah. was, like, the reason we got accepted. So for, like, any, like, aspiring entrepreneur out there, it, would you say, like, just, like, get boots on the ground, like, try this thing? Yeah. Try to get some data, try to get some evidence. Yeah. And then... There's no excuse not to. Unless you're building something that is so capitally intensive that you you could not possibly distill it down to, like, an experiment that was um, small and telling enough um, to manage it without, like, the entire capital investment. There are businesses like that. But most of SaaS, most consumer businesses... Um, biotech is a whole nother thing, but most ask most consumer businesses, like you have absolutely no excuse not to go out and fake it till you make it. Like I was advising a fellow potential entrepreneur about her business idea. And it's like a, um, like a database essentially to like find information. And she was talking about like hiring a technical person. I was like, fuck that Google docs. 
bank the database yourself. Yeah. You like put up a splash page, have people like input their query and say in like one hour you're going to get your answer and like be the concierge that's going to give people that information. There's a hundred percent like, uh, you know, she's she's going to be able to do that. She possesses all the skills to do that. It's time consuming as fuck, which is why I say if you are not obsessed with your idea, don't be an entrepreneur. Right. <laughs> but if you are, you will do that and you will get a lot of data and a lot of insight and you'll learn what works and you'll learn that what won't. And you should do it in a safe way. I, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop my hands. <laughs> I don't the even. I didn't even quotes, we're, all, we're all gesticulating a lot That's here. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, it's a great pod. I don't even need the air quotes for safe. I don't know why I did that. Um, you do it in a safe way because you, you don't quit your day job until you've done that. And you like workshop this shit. And like now, you know, I, I pitch investors um, with more success now than in the beginning, but still really hard. And a lot of times people are like, well, you incorporated in 2014. Why, like, how are you six years old and this is all you have to show for your business? And I was like, thank God we incorporated in 2014 because there's something called qualified small business stock, which means when you sell your shares after five years of holding it, you don't pay capital gains tax. Mm -hmm. So you get a bunch more money in your pocket. Like, shame on you for waiting to start your you know, start the clock ticking by incorporating your company um, if you are doing it just to please a VC because that's cheating you out of a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and, and that wasn't the only reason, but it, like I had a co-founder, like we wanted to make this official, even though we were really just like shooting the shit and like workshopping something and we weren't full time and we were like feeling our way through the dark for a while. And like, that's how it should be. Companies are much more successful the longer their founders have sort of just like noodled on it in an unofficial capacity because, A, it really proves out they have the passion to stay in the business long enough. If you just had this idea, as a VC, I wouldn't trust to invest in you because how do I know you're going to have the staying power five years from now when shit's hitting the fan? If you haven't already been spending five years like thinking about it and obsessing over it and losing sleep you know, while you're working your day job, while you're doing something else. Um, so I'm really glad that it, you know, we put in all those hours. It's like the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours kind of thing. Like we put in all the time before it actually became real. So doing like a hacky experiment, however you can in the safest way possible while you haven't quit your day job, even if you're going to get like dinged for it later by some, you know, investor who's like, well, I see on Crunchbase, you incorporated blah, 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 like fuck them. Because you're going to laugh all the way to the bank with your qualified small business stock once you figure out what you're actually doing. This concept of like becoming an official business is such this arbitrary line in the sand. And that seems to be what you discovered here is that like, it's a, it's a legal piece of paper. You know, and that's and you better have it because <laughs> right. God forbid what happens if you've been talking to you guys get together and you're like talking about starting a company and you were talking about it here in 2010 or sorry, 2010, 2020. Yeah. And then <laughs> like three years from now, you guys quit McKinsey and you're at like, you know, whatever. Where am I at? Yeah, I don't know. Right. <laughs> McKinsey. No, I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to think of something like not consulting just like to give a little variety for you guys. You're at Amex. And you've been there for a couple sure. years. You paid off your student loans, and you're yeah. like, okay, we're ready to do we're ready this. We're ready to do it now. But you didn't paper any of that shit up front. Yeah. And you feel like you put in way more time than you did. Although, actually, if you're Amex and you're in consulting, you put in more time <laughs> <laughs> than he did. And you're like, I should own more of this company. And you fight, and the whole thing goes to shit before it even got off the ground. Like, right. how disappointing would that be? Yeah. So, like, paper the shit up front. 
please, for the love of God, like it's so much easier, even if you end up getting these questions or like the press, you know, can see it doesn't seem like such an overnight success from the press's perspective. Like it doesn't matter because the alternative is so much worse. That's so interesting. So it's like to the extent that you've now is the time, you know, when you're in school to really have the capacity to, yeah, put pen to paper and, and, and make things as official as possible and then, you know, let, let the yeah. business grow after. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the company itself. So that was an awesome just sort of like genesis of the idea all the way through like officially founding it and like ra- ra- raising money, everything like that. So tell so so I would love to, for you to talk a little bit about like what what your company is doing now like with the retailers that you're partnering with. We we're just on your website, so you have we saw you have uh, clients like 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 Adidas and Callaway on there. So if I'm on like the Adidas site and I'm looking at like a T-shirt, like what is what is happening with uh, with Find Mine? Yeah. So I hate starting with like the output for the consumer because it makes it feel really small. But you asked, so I'll start there. And then I'm I'll... so sorry. That's okay. No, no, it happens all the time. And it's I'll play of... Adidas in this one. Then, yeah. So. <laughs> it's um, it's like uh, one um, application of our our software is what you would see on the Adidas site. And it's actually like, you know, performs tremendously well and is like a game changer for their business. But what you see is like if you're looking at a T-shirt, it'll say complete the look and it'll show you the pants and the shoes and the jacket and the bag that all go with that T-shirt. So it's solving that problem that we talked about before, which is I'm buying this product. I need to do something with it in order to be successful with it or in order to like accomplish my purpose. In fashion, that means getting dressed and being successful means wearing it with something to cover your butt, something to cover your feet and potentially a Mm -hmm. jacket if it's cold out. Mm -hmm. Um, And for Adidas, they sell running and golf and athletics, you know, street wear. Um, So them prescribing to you exactly what to wear with it has a tremendous impact because it's removed friction from your experience. And all their products or? It's all their products. It's all their products. So, so. Is, is this almost like, is this like a recommendation engine where it's like an Amazon, like frequently purchased with this, are these kinds of things? So or they also is it a have that like... on their website. So you would look at the t-shirt and it would say, you might also like these other t-shirts or maybe this pair of, you know, um, socks, but you don't wear five t-shirts and a pair of socks as an yeah, outfit. Right. So they actually had a team of people who are manually prescribing these outfits before we came along and we just automate that for them so that it happens more frequently. You can meet the consumer with this question about, you know, how should I use this product to be successful? Not just what should I buy? What should I buy is a lot easier to get right. And that's kind of the recommendation engine. But even on Amazon, like their customers who bought this also bought is very misleading often because it's not thinking about how you're going to use the product. So, um, we, we have plenty of examples in the company where people are, like, shopping on Amazon for something and they find, like, a, a an issue with that recommendation where it's, like, um, you're shopping for a vacuum cleaner and it says customers who bought this also bought shows attachments for a different vacuum cleaner. That happens all the time hmm. because customers who bought that vacuum might have also bought this other vacuum and the attachment. Yeah. And, so and it's not that useful. Uh, right, yeah. So it, it, the idea, I guess, is, like, if you've got their first-party data, or at least somewhat access to it, you can personalize those recommendations a lot better. So we don't have any first-party data on the consumer. Okay. What we're doing is we're taking the um, brand's expertise in whatever milieu they are. So vacuum cleaners, fashion, beauty, doesn't matter. And we're scaling that out. Because remember, they're the experts and the consumers are not. So if you use consumer data to make those recommendations, 
defeats the purpose of solving that. Yeah, that consumers might not know what they're doing. They sure. might have bought the wrong vacuum cleaner attachment, and now you're just perpetuating <laughs> the issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, recommendation engines are showing you what to buy, and that's a good thing because there might be a billion vacuum cleaners on Amazon, and they want to help you narrow it down to the one that's right for you because they know you have a pet because you buy pet food through them. So you might have, like, a lot of hair in your house because your dog sheds, right? So, like, they can narrow it down based on that, and that's great. That's a whole other category. It's a different problem that they're solving. It's a different solution. It's a different technology that solves it. What we do is we make sure that the expertise that lives inside these organizations that sell you vacuum cleaners and fashion get to you as a consumer. And we scale that out in a way that doesn't require people from Adidas to manually make outfits yeah. for the website. Is there, and I hope this isn't like getting like too technical in general, but in terms of like w with these models of like, oh yeah, like these pants go with this shirt and like these shoes go really well with it or like, and then here's like, it's we're, it's fall. So like maybe you want to use this kind of jacket. Are you, are these, are, the, are these models, are these recommendations getting like validated by like the Adidas people who like have manually done that? They might see like a couple of like the ML suggestions and be like, oh, this one makes sense. This one makes sense. And kind of keep training it in that way to keep the brand's sort of point of view and their, their image intact. Um, in the beginning, in the in the um, onboarding process, yes, they are. They're like heavily involved in that setup phase, because our our system is essentially learning just like a human would if you were to hire a merchandiser to work for the company, um, and you would sit them down, and you'd say, "Hey, this is you know day two, and here's what the brand is all about. Here's what we do. Here's what we wouldn't. These are words we would use." You kind of like help them get a sense of what the brand is and, and what they stand for, and you train them like that. We're trying to teach the engine that instead of a person. Right. But it's the same kind of process. So in the beginning, when we're getting onboarded with a client in the first like you know few weeks, that does happen, and they might say, "Hey, you put these things together," and that kind of like hits my eye. Funny. Here's why we wouldn't do that. We really like these kinds of combinations, not those kinds of combinations. But um, I'm really proud of us that we're the only kind of solution out there that can, once it's trained, and it only takes like, you know, a week or so, um, has really high quality at high scale. And so what I mean by that is that we're processing and serving like about 3 billion pieces of content that guide consumers. So, you know, outfits and fashion, furniture, decor sets, things like that. Um, so we're serving about 3 billion of those every year, and they're indistinguishable from a human-produced one. So a lot of times the merchandisers will write to our customer success and be like, can you look at this one because I don't know if I made that one or if that one came from the engine. <laughs> wow, that's perfect. That means you did it right. Yeah. Right. We're not trying to be better at, at their jobs than they are. Yeah, we're trying yeah, yeah. to be indistinguishable from sure. them so they can go back and do other parts of their job that only a human can do yeah. and replicate it so many times that they couldn't possibly, you know, like keep up that pace as a person. So that's what high quality, high scale means. Yeah. It's like the stylist tur Turing test almost, like if you can distinguish <laughs> who styled this. Yeah. So, um, so that, I mean, that sounds, that sounds fantastic. Like, I feel like that's something that like I would like to see on, on more websites. So I'm definitely like rooting for you guys, like Thanks. grow your client base. And you mentioned that you're, you're heavily in, in, you're mostly in retail right now. Um, what's sort of like the next step do you feel like for, for Find Mine and like, are there any other industries that you are interested in, in pursuing? Yeah. I mean, I feel like every brand has a unique expertise, whether you're financial services or insurance or whatever, like there's always an information gap. Always, always, always an information gap. 
between the person buying the product and the person selling the product. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is because, you know, as, as individual consumers or people, like we're not able to be experts at everything. That's why you have to specialize. So I feel like there's always the opportunity to help uh, other brands tell that story about what they are, who they like, what who they are, what they stand for, and what is important about the thing that they're selling you to differentiate themselves from the competition. Um, so we may get into those other industries. For now, there's like plenty of opportunity yeah. and money to be had and, and all the stuff within just physical products, like stuff that's getting sold to you by brands and, and retailers. Um, and it's not just e-commerce. And that's why, you know, when you first asked the question, it's like that one embodiment on the e-commerce website for Adidas is one really valuable place to use this. Because again, we're, we're all about meeting the customers where they're at. And a lot of customers are shopping on e-commerce. It's great. We also have solutions for the physical store, for the email channel. We have like a chat bot integration. You can basically take our API and consume it anywhere you want to guide your customer with that expertise. So that would that include like in the future, like in store or like if somebody has like a mirror and they're using like augmented reality to like try different things on. Yeah. This could be like an API that could plug into that and just give you like all these different kind of recs. Yeah. In store is totally possible today. There's um, applications like AR, VR that are kind of not mass adopted or well um, defined or good enough from like a user experience standpoint yet that most of our clients aren't using them. But in the world where they are and they're doing like everything is 3D rendered or everything is, you know, virtual try on, like, you know, do the full immersive VR experience. You can see yourself in the environment using the product or whatever. Our technology can pull in our content into those environments. Um, the only reason we're not doing them today is, like I said, that it's not really there. Yet. Underlying technology yeah. might not be there yet. That's so interesting. It's like you're you're so laser focused on the on solving that problem that you don't necessarily have to predict where the technology is going to go because it's still applicable. Like what you're solving is applicable regardless of the platform or method in which people yeah. shop or or interact. The bottleneck that we're debottlenecking yeah. is where a human would have to sit down and say, this is the content I want the consumer to get in whatever experience. So those experiences can go anywhere, any place, evolve however. But if you're a a brand and you're like, man, I really would love to do a, I don't know, a, a chat bot in Facebook Messenger where I could let customers, you know, get on demand guidance when they take a picture of a product that I sell, but I don't have the manpower to fulfill that, that's where we come in. Because now you have the manpower, but it's not a man, it's a it's a AI engine that's it. Bot to fulfill that. And you're done. Like yeah. your use case is possible now. That is really, really interesting. Um, uh, that's very, very cool space. Uh, one of the final things I think we wanted to just pick your brain about, a lot of people listening um, are interested in entrepreneurship. Your story is especially fascinating considering how um, how much that was on your mind while you were here. I think a lot of people go out, like you said, um, might do some work in the in <laughs> in a more corporate job, and then and then dive back into it. To people who have this passion for entrepreneurship, want to start their own thing, um, any thoughts of advice outside of if you have to do it, <laughs> <laughs> do X Y Z? Um, what what 
worked for you and what what kind of um, you know tidbits do you do you think you'd be able to share? Yeah, I had a, a ton of other ideas that I passed up on to do yeah. this one. So like they were all kind of happening concurrently and don't close yourself off so early, I think is um, I'm glad I didn't, you know, take the leap. And like I said, into like one idea right away, because you have this chance to let it kind of develop in this like long horse race to see which one is going to win. And, you know, this one happened to like be a nose in front of the other ones when I was like, okay, we're really doing this. Um, so like give it time to develop. Don't force it to happen. Like for a long time, my fear was being a, now I'm actually using air quotes, quote, entrepreneur. And wantrepreneur is a person who's a wannabe entrepreneur. Mm. And everyone kind of like might know someone like this, especially in New York and San Francisco, who's always talking about their startup, but it never really turns into anything. <laughs> like, it's like when you're in a room and you're like, who wants to be their own boss? And everyone's like, obviously me. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> And some people just have these like ideas that never get off the ground. They never go anywhere, but they characterize them as their startup and they talk about them as if it's a real thing. Nice. And so I think just being honest with yourself about it's an idea and you're just kind of like tinkering with it in your mind. And then that kind of, when are you a real company thing? Um, knowing when to, when to actually make something happen with it and when to take the risk. That's the really most important part because this place is fucking expensive. <laughs> you can, cut, you can edit it. that out if you want. <laughs> it's, no, it, we're leaving that in for yeah, sure. That's gotta be, um, we got to double down on that one. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think it's like the best $200,000 I've ever spent, just not from like the um, entrepreneurship and like how much has helped me with my startup, um, which it was, like if that was the only thing I got out of it. Yeah. But just like the confidence, the network, the um, resources, the education, the experiences, like all of it is so, so, so worth it. But if you graduate with that much debt, and the other thing too is like I, people need to hear that my um, circumstances were such that like I didn't graduate with 200000 in debt. I had scholarships and I had some savings coming in. So I graduated with less debt than the average Stern person. Yeah. Um, and then I got married like shortly after kind of I decided to start moving in this entrepreneurship direction more realistically and my husband had a great job so he, like I had a great job and he had a great job so we had these two really high incomes so we we're able to like take one down a yeah. bit and still be okay and that's not the case for everybody so you have to do your own kind of like risk reward calculation and that's why I always share that with people like who want to start companies because if you didn't have my situation your decision making might be completely different and that's that's good People shouldn't look at my story and be like, oh, I should just be without a salary for a couple of years and like, you know, tinker on the side and all this stuff if that's not feasible for you because you have mouths to feed and all that kind of stuff. Thanks for sharing that because I think, yeah, it, there is a there is a tendency to always sort of like idealize this success in a bubble and be like, well, it worked and that's how success works and they struck out on their own and, and everything's great. And so, and it's not always that like rosy picture, huh? Yeah. And I have other friends who like lived out of their car and like maxed out their credit cards. And I, I would not have done that. I would have drawn the line before right. that. And I didn't have to because I'm fortunate enough and, it, you know, to have the privilege to not have had to do that. Right. But if I had had to do that, I would have called it quits earlier. So you always have to know what your walk away point is. Um, but aside from that, my other one piece of advice is don't, don't quit don't die. If you're going to do it, so first of all, don't do it, but if you're going to do it, <laughs> then know what your walkaway point is for your personal, like, mental health, financial health, families, well-being, whatever. 
Um, but with, short of that, just find a way to keep going because there's always something that's coming to knock you off your track. And there's like, especially early on, we almost went out of business like multiple times um, amid like very dire circumstances. And then right around the corner, something amazing would happen. So if you just stay in it long enough and without going past your walkaway point, then that's, that's where companies end up being really successful. Some very, some very pragmatic and, uh, I like and helpful advice. Thank yeah. you, Michelle. Sure. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today. We're, uh, we're at time, but we really enjoyed hearing about your story, hearing about your company, and thanks so much again for, for making the time. Cool. Thanks for having me, guys. Love chatting. Thanks a lot. <laughs>